You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 5. Not 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to go back a bit. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to read the verses 6 to 12 and 17 to 20. It reads there, the king, which is David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemy. And that is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And then we move on to verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as water breaks out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the verses 1 to 17. After the king, which is David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. 
Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppose them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love, will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Beloved well, congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, it is Advent time once again. It is that time of year when we prepare to celebrate the feast of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know, music fitting to the season is starting to be heard. Decorations of one sort or another are making their way out of the cupboards and closets Arrangements for special family and other kinds of get-togethers are being made. Yes, and in the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, worship services too are starting to take on a special festive character. And the Bible study groups as well change their focus. And a new sense of camaraderie fills the air. Christmas is coming, or better yet, the feast of the Incarnation, is approaching. But of course, that is not all that is approaching. 
For this year, the sights of Christmas will have to compete with the road signs indicating that another federal election campaign is here. The sound of carols will be competing with the sound of election promises. And the message of peace on earth will be interrupted by political parties promising us even more. In short, it all makes one wonder and ask, what do Christmas and politics have in common? And why is the one allowed to spoil the other? And why, at least at this time of year, do the politicians not go away and simply become invisible? Well, beloved, one reason why they will not go away is because, in a way, the feast of the incarnation and politics, as well as political affairs, have always been tied together. Have you never noticed that before? You open your Bibles to Matthew 1 and you find a long list of names and, and many of those names are the names of kings and various political figures. You turn to Matthew 2 and who do you meet but the Magi, those mysterious men of old who may also have been kings. And you also meet Herod, wicked, vile, corrupt King Herod. Or what about Luke chapter 1, which mentions thrones and rulers and kings and kingdoms? And then there is Luke 2, which is dominated by the birth of that special royal child. You see, beloved, Christmas is political. Sorry to spoil your day, but it is. And the clearest proof of all of that is to be found in the many references sprinkled throughout the Old Testament as well as the New Testament to King David. His throne, his line, his town, his kingdom. As much as you may want to, this feast cannot be separated from royal affairs and political power. And the connection to David repeatedly reminds us of that. But perhaps you ask yourself, why are all of these references to David in the Bible, where does all of this come from? Well, beloved, for an answer, you and I need to turn all the way back to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what do we hear? We hear this. The Lord promises David a royal son and an eternal kingdom. And we're going to see that these promises commend with a disappointing correction. They continue with a double commitment and they climax with a dazzling crown. So the Lord promises a royal son and an eternal kingdom to David. These promises commence with a disappointing correction, continue with a double commitment, and climax with a dazzling crown. 
Well, beloved, the scene that opens in 2 Samuel 7 takes place in the ancient, now recaptured city of Jerusalem. And David the king and Nathan the prophet appear to be relaxing together, perhaps sipping iced cappuccinos, who knows. Yes, and they can afford to relax. For it says, David was settled in his palace. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. At last, David has a palace to call home, not a cave. At last, he can take off his armor and put on his slippers. At last, he can put up his feast, his feet, and enjoy it. But then as he is doing so, something disturbing comes to him, for he is living in all of this new luxury, thanks a lot to Hiram and his fellow workmen, living in this new palace. Where is the Lord? Where is he living? Where is he dwelling? Well, he's living in a tent. The king is living in a palace, and the Lord of glory is living in a tent. The contrast, you see, cannot be greater. And David, David notices it. You have to give him credit. He notices this great discrepancy. And often God's people have not. Think of the days after the exile when God's prophets had to step forward and point out to the people that while they were living in their fancy and paneled homes, God and God's home, His temple, was lying in ruins. So often people, even God's people, put themselves first. And God last. They spend, they spend, and spend on themselves. But they're blind to the needs of God, His church, and His kingdom. And it has to be said that even we are not always immune to that oversight. But nevertheless, David is not blind to all of this. And and something else you'll notice in our text, it really starts to bother him. And as a matter of fact, it bothers him so much that he's determined to do something about it. It is in the connection with this that he sounds out Nathan. After all, what better man to ask than the Lord's very own prophet? Who knows better than he? So Nathan, what do you think? Is it not high time that I do something about the fact that the ark of God remains in a tent? Is the time not right for me to build a proper dwelling for our God? Is this not a good temple building time? And what can Nathan do but agree? It's all so obvious, so right, so proper, so generous. Immediately he gives David his stamp of approval. Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Most of the time, Nathan is not so presumptuous, but he figures this is a no-brainer. Of course, God will approve David's plan and be pleased. 
Only, beloved, surprise, surprise, God does not approve. That very same night he comes to Nathan and he says that he's coming with a message of correction. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Did I ever say to any of Israel's rulers, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And you hear in that as well as the rest of this chapter that God vetoes David's plans. As fine and as noble as they may be, God will have none of it. And why is that? Well, look at the answer that he gives in the verses 6 and 7. He points out that he hasn't dwelt in a house from the day that he brought Israel up out of Egypt. And that through all of those years, he's been on the move, going from place to place. And he spent all that time living in a tent. Now, there are two things that stand out in these words of the Lord. The first has to do with the fact that the, the Lord goes with his people. He's been traveling with them. Traveling, as it were, step by step through the valleys, over the hills, across the deserts, along the plains, for weeks and days and months and years, even decades. He's been doing this. As long as his people are on the move, he moves with them. As long as his people have no rest, he has no rest. Here we see ever so concretely what it means when God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And here we also have the proof that later, when our Lord Jesus promises as his church, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These are not empty words. Our God goes with us. His Son goes with us. But still, beloved, in those words of God to Nathan, there's also a second thing to note. And it has to do with the incomprehensible condescension of our God. For He doesn't just travel with His people. No, He he lives among them. And in the sense, the word tent says it all. This God, our God, tents with His people every day. Can you imagine that? Here you are, the Almighty Creator of the heavens and the earth. Here you are living high and majestic above in unimaginable splendor. Here you are living in a world of light and peace and rest and glory. And what do you do? You exchange it all for a tent. You go down, 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 and you live in a tent. And even among a people who are noted and famous for their murmuring and rebellious ways. 
Why it all defies imagination. And yet it's true. It was true then. It's true today. If you're among those who believe that God's greatness cancels out His nearness, you need to revise your theology. Our God is up there, and our God is right here. Among us, with us, beside us, around us. And He's especially with us as we travel down the hard and the difficult roads of this life. And now, beloved, while it's comforting to be reminded about all of this, we might think that David would be at this point a very disappointed man. He wants so much to honor his God, but his God says no. Does that mean the Lord is rejecting him? No, for read on in the verses 8 and 9 of our text. What do they tell you? They don't tell you a lot about David, but they surely tell you a lot about our God. For example, he is the electing God. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. In other words, you didn't choose me. You didn't get a brainwave on some bright sunny day and decided it's time to follow the Lord. No, I chose you. When you were a farmer taking care of those sheep out in that meadow, I chose you and I made you king. God chooses, selects, and elects. And he also accompanies verse 9a, I have gone with you wherever you have gone. Not only has the Lord been traveling with his people Israel, but he's been traveling with his servant David. During all those fights with the Philistines, during all of those flights from Saul, during all that trouble and that grief, the Lord was there. Yes, and he was especially there with his protection. The second part of verse 9, And I have cut you off all your enemies from before you. Who enabled David to triumph? Who kept him going in dire circumstances? Who fought all of his battles for him? It's God. The electing, accompanying, and protecting God. And that's not all. For look, not only does the Lord remind David about what he has done for him in the past, he also announces to him what he's going to do for him in the future. Verse 9, the last part. And now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men of the earth. You see it, beloved? The electing, accompanying, protecting God is also the promoting God. David's name and reputation will be great on the earth. 
And hasn't that come true? Who has not heard of King David today? Who has not read his Psalms, especially Psalm 23? Who's not familiar with his place in history? God has truly caused David's name to soar. Yes, and along with the soaring of his name, there's also the establishment of his house. Read the last part of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You know what that is? That business about God establishing a house for David, that's a complete reversal of fortunes or of expectations. If you're a student of archaeology or ancient history, you'll understand just how radical this pronouncement really is. For everywhere in the Middle East, kings and rulers build houses and temples for their gods. You win a battle, you build a temple. You build a temple as a token of thanks to your God who gave you victory. That's the normal way. I notice not with the God of David. Not with the God of Israel. He's not going to allow David to build a house for him because he first is going to build a house for David. And not just for David alone, but also for David's people. Read the verses 10, 11a. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will oppress them no more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. What do we hear there? We hear about the Lord's great desire. The Lord's great longing to give His people a home, a place of safety, peace, of rest. And that's what He's longed to do for His people ever since the days of old, the days of the judges, the prophets and the kings the days before and after the exile. That was also his aim throughout the time of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Why else does he extend the invitation, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God wants to bring us to rest. And he will. One day, the struggles of life, burdens of living, sorrows of our existence, they'll all be over. 
It's not for nothing that the Bible ends with Revelation 21 and 22 and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. A new, eternal, and perfect home for God's people. Are you fed up with living? Are the blows and the setbacks raining down on you just too much? Is there an absence of joy in your life during these days of feasting and partying? Don't despair. A better day and a better home are still all a part and parcel of God's great agenda. Trust in Him. And He will see you through this life and into that better, more glorious life that is surely coming. But of course you ask, how can we be sure that this will really and truly be? Well, you might say, beloved, because our God is also the God of the covenant. Turn finally to the verses 12 to 16, where you'll find the heart and the soul of God's covenant with David and with Israel. Yes, and more than anything else, God is saying that this covenant that he makes is an indestructible covenant. First note, death cannot defeat it. Verses 12 to the beginning of verse 14. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You know, death, death usually means the end. So often it represents the end of our ambitions and dreams and plans and even empires. Mighty men know that they have to work quick because they have only so much time and there is no guarantee that their plans will really last. Death destroys everything. But here God comes to David and he says to David, that's not going to be the case with you. I am promising a future to you. I'm going to give you a son. A son for your name. A son who will establish your kingdom. A son who will sit on your throne. And we know that in due time King Solomon was born. And we know as well that he is the one who builds a house for my name, a temple great and glorious in splendor. Death doesn't spell the end, you see, of David's hopes and dreams and plans. 
Yes, and neither will something else, something even more destructive, namely sin. The second part of verse 14 and verse 15. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rods of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Three times in verse 15, we find the same Hebrew verb, which means to remove, to take away. But then notice that God's love is greater than sin. Even when King Solomon stumbles and falls as he does in the matter of his wives and his idolatries, God's love remains. There's something insurmountable about this love. Sin may bring punishment, but sin will not bring about ultimate rejection and destruction. It will never result in a total removal of God's love. And why not? Because this is special love. Covenant love. The original word here is that wondrous word chesed. And it points to a love that's stronger than death. Mightier than the grave. More powerful even than sin itself. It describes a love that will prevail. Yes, and that brings us naturally to a third thing about this covenant, and it is the fact that time is not going to deny it. Verse 16 tells the tale, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. Two times here in verse 16 and once back in verse 13, the Lord uses that word olam, forever. Always, without end. And thereby he's saying to David, David, this is a house a throne, a kingdom that's going to be there for all time and all eternity. You know, in George Frederick Handel's great oratoria, The Messiah, you'll find one of the finest choruses in all the world. The Hallelujah Chorus. And it ends with the words, and he shall reign forever and ever. Forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's now precisely what we read here in 2 Samuel 7. David's son will occupy an eternal throne, rule over an eternal kingdom, and live in an eternal house. He'll reign forever and ever. Yes, and now if we are in doubt about any of this, 
then we need to look beyond the words of 2 Samuel 7 and you can look at the words of Matthew 1 and 2 as well as Luke 1 and Luke 2. For who do we meet there? We meet the great and the wondrous son of David, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. You know, He's the one who destroys death his resurrection. He's the one who pays for sin by his blood. He's the one who rules over time as the Alpha and the Omega. King Solomon and all the kings of David's line who came after him were weak and flawed and temporary. But here is the great king of David. Perfect. Powerful. And everlasting. This king rules on high today. At the right hand of God the Father. And one day soon this king will come again in triumphs on the clouds of heaven. The great king of all the earth is coming. The king of glory is coming. Yes, and this king is our King, our Savior, and our Lord. And as for Advent time, it means that there is still time, beloved, to prepare your hearts and your lives for His coming. And in addition, as you celebrate this season, do not be put off or put out by the politicians, but rather let it be a reminder that Advent and politics really aren't so far apart after all. After all, we're expecting the greatest political figure of them all, our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.